Welcome to Brave Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us today. We're in a series on Sundays going through the Gospel of Mark, but we also want to encourage you, if you live in the area, go to brave.church slash homechurch and check out our home churches that are gathering together around these teachings throughout the week. We believe the kind of church Jesus came to start is more than a crowd. It's friends on a mission living life together. Another great way to connect further is through social media, where there is content designed to inspire and inform you. Here's this week's talk. Uh, We're picking back up in the Gospel of Mark, and we're in Mark 3, verses 20 through 35. And uh, if you didn't get notes, go ahead and raise your hand. You're going to want notes today. Our ushers will get those to you. And uh, I want to give you a little preview of where we're headed before we look at our passage. Um, Who's ever had a define the relationship talk? Anybody? Okay, uh, I've had a few. Usually when we think of these talks, we think of them in a romantic context. Um, Some people are really good at these talks. Others are not. I'm one of the others, okay? I'm not that great. Uh, When I was dating my wife, uh, twice we broke up, and I did it at a coffee shop. And you would have thought I would have learned the first time, but I didn't. And the worst part was is I didn't plan a ride home. And... uh, (laughs) No joke, we're riding in the car, and this Sam Smith song, Stay With Me, comes on. I'm like, is this my life? Like, what is going on? But we're happily married today, and and our relationship is very defined. Um, But a define the relationship talk, I mean, this can be when you go from like, hey, I like you, you like me, let's get committed, let's get more serious. Uh, Is there a ringing going on? Can you bring, bring the volume down, maybe? Um, it could be, I'm just talking loud today. I'm excited. Are you guys excited to be here? Yeah, there we go. Uh, it could be the first time that you talk about a long-term future together. Uh, sometimes these talks can be pretty intense. Like, hey, this is going to need to change if this is going anywhere. And we don't just have these romantically. We have these in friendships, too. Maybe you've had a friendship that wasn't going so well, or something happened, and you needed to talk about it. Um, Usually these conversations are preceded by four words that, when strung together, produce one of the scariest phrases in the English language. We need to talk. Turn to the person next to you and say, we need to talk. So here's my disc. Why are you guys laughing? Maybe you had one of those talks with the person sitting next to you recently, huh? Um, So my disclaimer this morning, before we get into this passage, is today's talk is kind of like a we-need-to-talk from Jesus. Um, For many of us here, Jesus wants to redefine his relationship with you. So hang with me. I promise where it's going is is a place that uh, our souls long to be the kind of relationship that maybe you don't even know is possible with your creator. See, in in the previous verses, uh, we saw Jesus call out 12 from the crowd into the hills, away from his enemies, where he could shape a truly revolutionary group that would one day change the world. But in today's passage, we'll see Jesus encounter some unexpected opposition and some opposition that we might expect. But what it leads to is Jesus is giving us his criteria for what it takes to be part of his inner circle. So what separates those that were closest to Jesus and everyone else? Would you be in his inner circle? Would I be in his inner circle? See, many of us would want to be. Many of us aspire to be, or we think of ourselves as close to God. Uh, but, But are we there? 
How close are we? Are we in his inner circle? In this passage, Jesus, he gives us the criteria for his inner circle. Do you guys want to be closer to Jesus today? All right. So Mark 3, let's, let's begin reading in verse 20. It says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. Now, this story is unique to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospels are four books that tell Jesus' story. And in some of them, things repeat. But this story that we're looking at today only happens in the Gospel of Mark. And it says that they entered the house, and a large group demanded their attention. And so it's implying that Jesus didn't really have time to take care of his own needs. He didn't have time to eat or rest. I mean, this group is upon him. And so when his family finds out, they're not too happy, and they decide they're going to go and take charge of him. And when we see this phrase, take charge, it's not talking about like, hey, you know, I think it's time that we surprise Jesus, show up in his living room, and have a little intervention, <laughs> right? No, they actually went to grab hold of him. It's the Greek word used for an arrest. Like, they were going to kidnap Jesus and bring him back home because they, they just thought he was crazy. They thought he was mentally unbalanced. They thought he was a religious fanatic. So verse 22, the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem, they saw uh, Jerusalem, they said, he's possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. So here we have a delegation of a delegation of law teachers, and they came down from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus. And they repeatedly charged that he was possessed by a demon and that he was driving out demons through a power alliance with Satan, who's the ruler of demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, and then he can plunder the strong man's house. So what does Jesus do? He summons his accusers, and he refutes their charges in parables. Now, typically when we hear a parable, we think of short stories. But in this case, these are short proverbial sayings. So Jesus, he's responding with wisdom and logic. And it's really interesting. He dealt with the second accusation first by just showing how absurd their assumption is that Satan is against Satan, that he's acting against himself. And he used two illustrations to hammer home his point, which is that a house divided cannot stand. See, if this were true, if Satan's household was already divided, it would be powerless. But what we see here is that he's wreaking havoc on people's lives. So in verse 27, Jesus, he refers to Satan then as a strong man whose house is the realm of sin, sickness, death, and the demonic. And his possessions are people who are enslaved to one or more of these things. And no one can enter his realm or carry off his possessions unless he first binds the strong man. So at Jesus' temptation and all of these exorcisms that we've been seeing where Jesus is casting out demons and evil spirits, what he's doing is he's demonstrating that he is the stronger one, that he is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. 
His mission is to confront and overpower Satan and to set free all who are enslaved to him. It's continuing in verse 28. It says, truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying that he has an impure spirit. See, in light of the preceding charges, Jesus is issuing a very strong warning. When he says, truly, I tell you, he's saying, I'm telling you the truth. And this truly, I tell you phrase, it's a reoccurring formula of a solemn oath. And when Jesus says this, he's the only one that says this in the Gospels. It's only found in the Gospels, spoken by Jesus. And what he's saying is, hey, this is really important. What I'm telling to you is really important. So when Jesus says this, he declares all the sins and all of the derogatory words used against God, they're open to forgiveness. But one exception, blasphemies against the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus Uh, He's talking about not just an utterance, not just a one-time thing. You said this and you're doomed forever. He's talking about an attitude. He's talking about an attitude of defiant hostility toward God, an attitude that rejects his saving power made possible through the Holy Spirit. See, the only way that someone can come to know God is through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way it makes sense. You know, there's a place for Uh, debating and conversations. But at the end of the day, our faith becomes real only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is saying, if you have an attitude of hostility and defiance towards the work of the Spirit, you'll never find my forgiveness and you'll never find me because it only happens through my Spirit. See, these are people who prefer darkness even after being exposed to light a persistent attitude of willful unbelief that over time leads to a condition in which repentance and forgiveness of sins becomes impossible. Now, if you think Jesus is overreacting, think about this. By calling him or or, or saying that he's casting out demons with an impure spirit, they're essentially calling the Holy Spirit Satan. And Jesus took that very seriously. Um, Verse 31, then Jesus' mother and his brothers arrived, and they're standing outside. They sent someone to call him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So he responds to the teachers of the law with this grave warning. And now we have his family, and they're back on the scene. And they've traveled 20 miles from Nazareth. And they're standing outside. Clearly, there was still a a huge crowd. They couldn't get through. And so they send someone through requesting a private conversation with Jesus. And their intention is to get him alone and restrain him. How annoying, right? If you're Jesus... And your family just, they totally don't get who you are. Like, they're, they're totally missing it. You've even got a following, and your own family is completely missing it. And even Jesus was misunderstood by his family, right? Maybe you know what this is like. Anybody ever feel misunderstood by your family? So what does Jesus do? He responds with a, very, uh, with a bold rhetorical question. He says, who are my mother and who are my brothers? 
Jesus is totally on one today. He's dishing it out. He's like, hey, you guys better be careful or you could go to hell. And you guys aren't even my family anymore. Like, what's going on? He's not devaluing family. Okay, God created family. He loves family. It's God's model. Uh, he's, he's speaking to something deeper than family ties, something that matters even more. And it's a person's relationship with him, a person's relationship with Jesus. So he looks at those seated around him in his circle, his disciples, and he contrasts them with those standing outside his family. Jesus is saying that the closeness of his inner circle goes beyond natural family ties. He's building a tight-knit spiritual family. Some of you may know what it's like to, to feel closer to someone in church, in, 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 in this spiritual family, even closer than some of your blood relatives. Maybe you don't have a family and you found one here. That's part of God's plan, that, that we can be connected by something even greater than, than birth, even greater than, than our blood ties, that we can be connected by God. And it's this is an amazing thing. So, so how close are you in relationship to Jesus? I want to illustrate something before uh, we get into some of these signs that I think help, you know, Put to, put to words and, and paint a picture of what it looks like to be moving towards Jesus' inner circle. But check out this chart. So if we've got Jesus at the very center, and then Satan's on the outside, okay? I know technically his dot's on the inside. I don't know how that happened. Um, we'll fix that this week. But Satan's like, he's the furthest, okay? And then the next one in, we've got religious leaders, so the religious leaders, they were his earthly opposition. Okay, they're, they're against Jesus. And then we're getting closer. We've got the crowd. These are the people coming. They're hearing about him. They want to see what he's up to. And then we go even closer, and we've got his family. But what just happened at the end of this passage is his family is crossed off. Maybe you can remember a time in your life where you directly opposed Jesus. Like his family, you saw the world a certain way, and it blinded you from what truly matters. Or like the religious leaders, maybe you thought you knew better than God. See, if, if that's where you're at or that's where you're, you've been, uh, you're in good company. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, directly opposed God. He was killing Christians. For others, maybe you're in the crowd and, and you're hearing the teaching and you're seeing what God can do. God has a, a history of moving people who are far from him, closer to him. But we're going we're gonna to get to that in a little bit. Uh, but right now, regardless of where you are on this chart, Jesus is inviting you to, stay, to take steps towards him. He's inviting you to move closer and into his inner circle. So in this passage, we're going to discover three signs that you're moving towards the inner circle of Jesus. And I think that you're going to find that some of these are not what you would expect. According to Jesus, it's not how many hours you spend in prayer and worship. Did you know that Satan was the chief worship leader in heaven? Look at how far he fell from God. It's not how much scripture you have memorized. The teachers of the law, they were theologians. They had entire books of the Bible memorized. Um, so what are the signs? What does it look like practically for your life to be moving towards Jesus? Number one, and this is in your notes, your direction is affirmed by unfair accusations. Your direction is affirmed by unfair accusations. The more Jesus started living boldly, 
revealing his true identity, doing the things that he was placed on this earth to do, the more he was unfairly accused. When you know who you are, like Jesus, you'll be criticized by those who don't. And Jesus, he faced two different accusations here. The first, his family saying he's out of his mind. And I think it's really important that we put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. I mean, Jesus, we think of him, you know, he's God. And he's up here, and he's amazing, but he's also right here, fully human. He was fully divine and fully human, and that means that he can relate to you. That means that he knows what it's like for your, for your feelings to be hurt. He knows what it's like to be in pain. The Bible says at times he wept. He was a very emotional person. He experienced everything that we experience. And so here he is, the most popular person on the planet, but he's starting to speak and act like a king. And not just any king, but the king of kings, the savior of the world, God in the flesh. But to his family, he was still Jesus, my son, or, or Jesus, my brother. And you know, as a good parent, your number one concern is protecting your kids or setting them up for success. But Jesus wasn't on a path of protection. He was on a path to the cross, in Western church culture, there's, there's so much talk of balance and health. You know, we live in a time where that, that's a huge focus, and that's, those are good things. But here we see Jesus living out a mission that sometimes caused him to sacrifice balance. See, sometimes he didn't have time to eat. Sometimes he missed a meal. Sometimes he actually didn't have time to take care of himself. Not, I don't know, know how often, but we know it happened. Right? How exciting is that to be so about something that you forget to eat? I'll never forget when I was uh, six years old, my parents were a year into planting a church in a small town called Lincoln in Northern California. And we got to this point where we were just totally broke and we didn't have money for food. And we didn't tell anyone, but we were at this meeting at the church and on the way home we were praying and praying that God would provide. And we came home and there were bags of groceries on our front porch. Just bags of groceries. I mean, there, we had Cocoa Puffs, like stuff I can't even eat anymore. Like Jesus, you know, we, 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 we hear maybe stories like this or things that are inspiring that Christians and people of faith have done. But we think, you know, that's a little crazy. Like maybe Darren should have got another job, <laughs> right? Or maybe, maybe you should do something that, that can provide for your family. Or maybe, maybe you're not in God's will because, because you're, you're struggling or, or you're lacking or, or whatever that might look like. But let me explain something to you. The reason I'm standing here isn't because they built a church that had an incredible kids ministry. It's not because we went on missions trips or camps or, or had a great youth pastor. Those things are awesome. We had those things. But I also know friends that I shared those experiences with that have no faith at all today. The reason I have a faith today is because my parents lived a real faith in front of me, a faith that took risks, a faith that sacrificed, a faith that was willing to follow even when it was hard. See, sometimes accusation, when you're stepping out and you're obeying God and you're doing things that are unconventional or maybe not the norm, sometimes accusation is a sign that you're moving closer to Jesus. It could be standing up for what's right at work, maybe even at the risk of creating conflict with coworkers. 
It could be getting some help, going to uh, a recovery group or talking to a counselor or what you, whatever you need to do, the steps to pursuing health. It could be um, distancing yourself from some friends that are making it harder for you to grow. If you're taking steps towards Jesus and you're accused of things that aren't true and hurtful, sometimes that's the sign you're moving in the right direction. So how do you know that you're moving closer to Jesus? Number one, uh, your direction is affirmed by unfair accusations. And number two, you promote unity. Jesus said that a divided house cannot stand. You can't overrate unity. We, we live in a culture that's all about the individual, and there's nothing wrong with celebrating our uniqueness. Uh, but when we take that too far, we forfeit our collective power. How far do you think the movement of Christianity would have gone if there wasn't a united core at the center? In this passage, we see two characteristics of unity, and these, these are also in your notes. A, a perceptiveness to what the Spirit is doing. This is an awareness of what's happening, what God's doing, the part that, that's, that's clearly him and not you and not me. And are we behind that? A perceptiveness to what the Spirit's doing. And then B, being at peace with those around you. Being a, being a person of peace. Uh, in Daniel Coyle's new book, Culture Code, he tells a story about a contest that a designer and an engineer did to try to find out why some groups add up to be greater than the sum of their parts and other groups don't. And it's really interesting what they did. They put several groups together at Stanford, Cal, University of Tokyo, and some other colleges. And half of the groups were business students, and the other half were kindergartners. And they were all given a challenge, and they were to build the tallest possible structure using 20 pieces of uncooked spaghetti, one yard of transparent tape, one yard of string, and a standard-sized marshmallow. And the only rule was that the marshmallow had to be at the top. Now, how many of you are wishing we were in home church right now so you could all do this this week, right? <laughs> Save that one for, uh, for next semester. But what we found is, or what they found, is that the business school students, they got right down to strategizing, talking things through, coming up with a plan, sharing their, you know, talking about their shared experiences, what they thought would be the, the best way to get the tallest structure. And the kindergartners didn't do that. <laughs> they just jumped in. Their, their technique could best be described as bunching things together. And whatever they could do, um, they're, just, they're just shoulder to shoulder, right down in it. And if you were betting, you'd probably bet that the business school students built the tallest structure, but you'd be wrong. The kindergartners did, by far. Their structures averaged 26 inches tall, and the business school students averaged below 10 inches. <laughs> Crazy. And it's hard, to, it's hard to imagine, like, how does this happen? Well, what they found when they were doing research and, and studying, studying this is that what the business school students were actually doing it's called status management. They're figuring out where they fit in the larger picture. Who's in charge? Is it OK to criticize an idea? What are, what are the rules here? And their intentions seemed smooth, but they were completely inefficient. And it caused them to hesitate, compete amongst themselves. Instead of focusing on the task, they were navigating the uncertainty of the circumstances and where they stood in relationship to others. But the kindergartners, they're right down in it, shoulder to shoulder, completely disorganized, but it was efficient and effective. Okay, they got shoulder to shoulder. They, they weren't competing for status. They moved quickly, energetically. They were helping each other. The kindergartners succeeded, not because they were smarter, but because they worked together 
in a smarter way. See, we really believe that we're better together. We really believe that. But only if we work together in unity. Promoting unity, it's seeing what the Spirit's doing. It's being at peace with those around you. See, we've been, we've been growing a lot as a community and as a church. And so there's a lot of, of new people that have been joining us. And as you join this community, the temptation will be to become known by how, how smart you are, how talented you are, or what you can do. But Jesus is saying, hey, no, let's prefer one another. We know you're talented. We know you can do a lot. That's great. But what matters even more than that is that we have unity, that we're in this together, and that we remember that what we're part of is bigger than us. There's a quote by Brian Houston, who pastors Hillsong Church, that says, what you are a part of is bigger than the part you play. I love that. People, they often find this out the hard way. It can take years. It can take a lifetime to learn some of these things. You can't be at peace with others while you're in competition. You can't be at peace with those around you when when you're trying to stand out or stand above. You can't be at peace with those around you when your biggest concerns are all about you. See, Jesus invites us to give up our agendas, to give up some of our rights as individuals in order to love one another better. There's a, there's a quote in, in our programs that's printed on the inside, and it says, our level of success as a community is measured by our ability to love one another. And that's a beautiful quote, but it's not just a beautiful quote. It's something that we're living out. And that means that if, if someone is disrespectful or short with people or, or, or gossiping or being critical in a way that tears things down and they're on a team, we're going to have loving conversations because we, we, will, uh, we will love people and we will allow everyone and anyone and everyone is welcome. But we, what we will not do is forfeit our unity because we have a mission and we are more powerful. We are better together. And life is short, guys. We have a sense of urgency about this thing. Have you caught on to that? Like, like every day counts. And so what we do together in our unity really matters because, see, we only have one vision. Division is, division is division. It's two different visions. We have one vision, and it's to help people find and follow Jesus. And if it doesn't fit in line with that vision, we're not doing it. When you promote unity, when you speak love and words of honor and respect, God brings you closer to the action because you can be trusted, because you're mature, you're thinking beyond just yourself and your preferences and your desires and you're and your preferring others. You're a more loving person. So how do you know that you're drawing closer to Jesus? Number one, your direction's affirmed by unfair accusations. Number two, you're promoting unity. And lastly, number three, your life mission is doing God's will. And that's a big one. That's a big one, right? But it's at the center, it's the central qualifier to being in Jesus's inner circle is a reprioritization of your life. And that's what we believe that it means to be a follower of Jesus, is to share his mission. Jesus, he's drawing a line and it's revealing the motives of our hearts. There's a story in the Bible about a woman who was caught in adultery and there was a group that was about to stone her. And then Jesus, he draws a line in the sand and he delivers one of his most memorable, impactful quotes. He says, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. They all drop their stones and walk away. 
His point is that none of us are perfect, but by God's grace, we can be forgiven. Here in this passage, Jesus is drawing a line again. It's a circle around himself. And he says, you know, you know who gets to be closest to me? You know who I want in my inner circle? It's not the smartest. It's not the, the brightest. It's not the most perfect. It's not the most resourceful. Uh, it's not the most likable. It's the people who are willing to share my mission. Those are the people that I want in my circle. See, Jesus, his, his earthly family and his kingdom family were only separated by one thing. And it was making your life about doing God's will. Some of you here today, you know this, you hear this, but there are some things standing in your way. Your, your head knows that there's gonna be some opposition, there's gonna be some accusations when I start going in a direction that is against the grain, that is against some of what, what culture would say or, or what my family might think. You know that in your head. Some of you know that unity is a good thing. It, it, promoting unity, being a person that builds unity within a community. Some of you, you know, you know that, okay? You know that your life should be about something greater than yourself. You know that, it, it, that this existence can't just be about you. You know that. But I want to say something that isn't about what you know. It's about your heart. It's about what you feel. It's about what you let get at the center of who you are and your life and your identity and how you see yourself. See, none of this matters. None of this matters if you don't believe that you're chosen. There, there are so many reasons not to believe it. It might be insecurity. It might be, you might feel ineligible, like you've made some mistakes. If, if people only knew what you've done or what you're doing right now, you know, sin, shame, guilt, all of these things get in the way. All of these things make us feel disqualified, make us feel like we're beyond God's reach, beyond his love, but it's not true. You're chosen. God accepts us. He chooses us and he, and he has plans for our lives that are far greater than we could imagine. If I tried to convince some of you what God's plan is for your life, you would laugh at me. You would not believe me. But that's the God we serve. See, too many of us, we're thinking about what could happen in our lives based on what we're capable of. And we're forgetting that our God is capable of the impossible. Amen. stand together and we're going to sing this song one more time and we're going to declare in this room that I am chosen, that you are chosen, that we are chosen. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's our hope that you will let this message go deep within your soul and allow Jesus to do the work that only he can do. We also want to encourage you to partner with us here at Brave. Go to brave.church and become a regular giver and be part of how God is using this message to help people find and follow Jesus.